Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Great to have you back. My name's Simon Alicia here in San Francisco this week uh, on the road. So operating from a hotel room and hopefully my audio production skills are up to the task and I can keep some of the background tooting noise that's coming through the windows out of the podcast. Lots and lots to cover today. We have a whole bunch of updates that were announced last week that I wanted to share with you because they can affect the way you build your systems, the way you create new systems, and save you some money on some existing things. So let's start with the saving some money part because we always like that part, don't we? So EBS, EBS has had a price reduction in all commercial regions. The snapshot price for EBS has dropped by 47%. So the storage price for those snapshots has dropped significantly. And this is really good because you should be taking snapshots of your EBS volumes. Whilst EBS volumes are very durable, it is good practice to always take snapshots and to keep a rotation of those snapshots so that you can go back to a known good point in time. This can be useful if you have logical corruption, if your EBS volume goes away for some reason, if someone deletes it accidentally. Backups are good things, we like to have them. So uh, now you can have uh, 47% more at the same price or the same amount of snapshots for 47% less, which is pretty good. In talking about increases, another thing that's increased is the amount of provisioned IOPS per gigabyte of SSD back storage you can create. So uh, you'll remember that originally you could create up to 30 IOPS per gigabyte of SSD back storage. So that's uh, IO1 volumes. Now you can provision up to 50 IOs per second per gigabyte. So it's a 66% increase. What this means is that you can create smaller volumes that have sufficient provisioned IOPS, whereas before you may have created a volume size based on the amount of IOPS you're trying to achieve. So you can imagine if you knew you needed a particular amount of throughput, but you couldn't get it out of the capacity you had available. You had to increase the capacity just for the throughput. Now you don't have to do that so much. So for example, uh, if you need 20,000 provisioned IOPS, you can create a 400 gigabyte volume instead of before where it had to be a 667 gigabyte volume. So that's a very nice little tweak to the performance aspects of EBS. Speaking of storage, our new friend at the AWS Snowball has had a couple of really interesting updates. So you'll remember that um, we introduced the AWS Import-Export Snowball uh, last year and it's been very, very popular. In fact, it recently got uh, released in Australia and we've been seeing a huge uptake of customers using that as a really easy way to move data from their existing uh, on-premises data center into AWS. Uh, you can have up to 80 terabytes of data on it. It uh, does the encryption for you. It's very easy to ship around, etc. which is pretty cool. So what are the two new things that have been added? The first is a Snowball Job Management API. So we think this is very, very interesting and exciting because our storage partners can now automate their interaction with and integration with the Snowball workflow. So we have three primary functions, create job, list jobs, and describe job. So you can see that you can automatically create a job that initiates the shipment of the appliance. You can see what jobs are. You can also fetch information about specific jobs. So we're kind of looking forward to seeing what people build out of this. One of the nice things that we see is that when we create these APIs for our customers and our partners to use, they build things we could never have thought of ourselves. And that's really great for our customers. The other new thing is the S3 adapter. Now this is really nifty because this allows you to access your snowball as if it was an Amazon S3 endpoint. Now, why is this interesting? Well, many customers have very good discipline and use of tools that work using the 
S3 way of operating. So they have S3-centric tools is how we refer to them. What this means is you can use those S3-centric tools to move data to or from your Snowball. Now you do this by downloading the Snowball's, uh, the, sorry, the appropriate file from the Snowball's tool page. It's basically an adapter file. It's available on multiple Linux list distributions and also on Windows as well. And basically it allows you to create an endpoint that you can point to that operates the Snowball as if it was an S3 endpoint, which is really, really nifty. Now one thing I will point out is that the initial release of the adapter supports a subset of the S3 API. So it includes get on buckets and on the service, head on a bucket and on objects, put and delete on objects, and of course all the multi-part upload operations. So if you're going to use it for something outside of that, testing as always is uh, highly recommended. But a very nifty change, and I think an area we'll see a lot of growth going on. I'm sure many of you are sitting there listening going, hmm, I could do some interesting things with that. Speaking of our old friend S3, things never stop developing in S3 land, and here's a new one that I know many of you have been waiting for a while for and been asking for, which is IPv6 support for Amazon S3. We all know that we've run out of IPv4 ranges and there's a whole lot of netting going on to get around all that. With IPv6, obviously, we have as many addresses as we could possibly need, as uh, many people have said many, many times. Uh, I'll take them at their word. What I can tell you today, though, is that now you can access your S3 content via IPv6. Now, what you do is, because it's been deployed in a dual-stack configuration, what you do is you access it using two specific kinds of endpoint semantics. So you can go http forward forward slash bucket name dot s3 dot dual stack dot region name dot amazon aws dot com or you can do the http forward forward slash s3 dot dual stack dot region name dot amazon aws dot com forward slash bucket now what this means is that when you use these endpoints the stacks on your client machines and dns lookups will automatically return uh, an a record but also a quadruple a record as well with the ipv6 address so most cases, the network stack and the client environment will prefer that quadruple A record and use the IPv6 mechanism. Now, what you need to be aware of is a few little tricky things. So all the SDKs are being updated to support this. That should be out pretty much now by the time you listen to this. Uh, if you're using the AWS command line or the AWS tools for Windows PowerShell, there's a enable dual stack flag to switch the endpoints. There's also some gotchas that we found um, you may want to be aware of when you get started. One of the probably the uh, most obvious but often overlooked things is if you have bucket and IAM policies that grant or restrict access using IP addresses, you need to of course update them to include the desired IPv6 ranges. Otherwise, you may lose access altogether because the IAM policy is going to enforce that. Also, you need to be careful to make sure that your clients genuinely have IPv6 connectivity. So even though the client endpoint is able to use dual stack, it may not actually be able to route packets all the way through the internet. So you just need to make sure of that. Another nifty little gotcha is that uh, log entries will, of course, include the IPv4 and IPv6 addresses as appropriate. Now, if you're using any analysis tools, etc., you've got to make sure that it can understand IPv6 addresses. Now, I know personally, the big difference of for me between IPv4 and V6 is I can remember IPv4 addresses. I have no such capability in the IPv6 range. Uh, 
Now, IPv6 support is available for all S3 features with the exception of website hosting, S3 transfer acceleration, and access via BitTorrent at this point. In terms of region support, it's available in all commercial AWS regions and AWS GovCloud, but it's not currently available in the China-Beijing region. So well done to the S3 team, fantastic update there as well. Another really important update, an example of uh, driving products to customer needs, is the bring your own keys capability for the AWS key management service. Now, if you've never played with KMS, uh, this gives you seamless centralized control over your encryption keys. And this is a non-trivial space that is a classic example of undifferentiated heavy lifting. Because what this does is it basically turns the problem domain into a fully managed service, which automatically handles all the availability, the scalability, the physical security, and hardware maintenance for the underlying key management infrastructure. It also gives you this nice centralized location with one dashboard that shows you how to create your keys, rotate your keys, do all the lifecycle management, no upfront cost, and purely usage pricing that starts at $1 per customer master key per month. It's also a really nifty integration point to encrypt data stored in S3, EBS, RDS, Redshift, and pretty much any other AWS service that's integrated with KMS. Now, lots of AWS customers use KMS to create and manage their keys. Some of them, though, said they would like to maintain local control over their keys as well whilst using KMS. So now, to support this type of use case, you can bring your own keys to KMS. So this means you can have a secure copy of the keys outside of AWS, but you can import these keys from any key management and HSM solution that supports the RSA PKCS number one standard. So you can import them in, then they get tracked using CloudTrail, etc. And the import process is very interesting. I'm not gonna go into the detail of it, but of course, if you're moving sensitive material, it needs to be encrypted as well. And it does get encrypted as well. So this new feature is available now in uh, GovCloud and in all commercial AWS regions except for the China-Beijing region. So you can get into it and use it today. Now you may think, well, Simon, you've been going on for a while now. Surely that's all the uh, updates you have for us. Well, no, no, no. In fact, they get even more interesting and more sophisticated as we go. One of those ones is usage plans for the Amazon API gateway. Now, we released API Gateway last year and it allows developers to build backend web services for mobile, for web, for enterprise and IoT applications. It's a really flexible and powerful capability that solves a lot of problems that customers were facing in terms of presenting APIs, particularly to a public audience. One of the things that uh, people like to do with the public audience is of course give them access to the APIs and they do this using API keys. And this allows the developer to control what gets accessed by whom and how. Now the usage plans allow us to control different aspects of access to an API. It allows us to control throttling. So this is the overall request rate or the average request per second and a burst capacity. The quota, so it's the number of requests that could be made per day, per week or per month. And of course, which API and stages of the API can be accessed. Now, fortunately, if you use the console, there's a whole default setup capability that's there, which is really, really nifty. It basically lets you paint by numbers to create the usage plan for your customers, which means it's very easy to define what sort of level they have. So you could have like you know, gold, silver, bronze. You could have a, a student, individual, professional enterprise, etc. You can control all those sorts of things. The nice thing, particularly I find with the throttling, is that it allows you to control 
at a very granular level how much people can access your API. This is very, very important because you want to maintain some degree of control over rate and usage. And this allows you to scale your own infrastructure to the back end. You can avoid abuse of your API and can make sure that your users are good citizens. Now, throttling is implemented using a token bucket model, which many of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with. Essentially, the bucket is large enough to hold the number of tokens denoted by the burst value, and it gets new tokens at a specified rate. So every time you do an API request, you take a token from the bucket. Um, but using a token bucket concept means you've got this steady stream of requests that can come in and the capability to burst when you need to as well. The other nice thing you can do is if you have a quota situation where you've got a customer that's going really well, using the system very nicely, and they're sort of hitting their quota for the month or the week, you can actually allow them to have an extension. And this allows you to extend the number of requests they're able to make for the remainder of that period without changing their overall request amount. So this is really useful as well for those ad hoc type of situations. Now, just remember that you can uh, be very, you need to be very careful that API keys are for identification, not for authentication. So the keys aren't used to sign requests and they're not a security mechanism. Uh, Cognito, your user pools are a great solution for that. However, this allows you to define who has access to which capabilities within the APIs based upon a particular set of keys. So that is the API gateway. I'm still going though, because there is more. Now this one is an absolute rip. I'm very excited about this particular update. The Amazon Kinesis Analytics. So this allows you to process streaming data in real time with SQL. Now I learned SQL a long time ago. In fact, I learned SQL on DB2 on a mainframe and it has served me well because it is the language of analytics, uh, basically. Sure, there's lots of other different kinds, but this is kind of the one that you could find pretty much anyone can do. Now, Amazon Kinesis Analytics allows you to run continuous SQL queries against your streaming data, doing filtering, transforming, and summarizing the data as it arrives. Now, this changes the way we think about doing a query. So let's just step back for a minute. In a typical model, we think about just uh, having a sort of static or point in time set of database tables, and we execute a query against that, and we get an answer. In the Kinesis model, of course, we've got data streaming through this pipeline all the time. So now our query is operating against a constantly changing set of data. So how do we manage this? We use the concept of a processing window. And Kinesis Analytics supports three different types of windows. The first one is called tumbling windows. And these are periodic reports. So you could use a tumbling window to summarize data over time. So it could be a, a per minute, per second, per week, type model. You can sort of slice and dice how you want. Essentially, a new result comes when each window fills up. Sliding windows, which many of you will be familiar with, are used for more trend type analysis. So what's happened to the sliding average time period? And then there are custom windows where you can do sessionalization. We create a session that bounds the first and last actions of a particular user by an identifier that is tagged on the incoming data. So you can be very, very sophisticated on this. Now, it sounds harder than it is, actually. It's quite kind of interesting. Essentially, you're doing really two things to get it up and running. You create a statement that creates an in-application stream to store intermediate SQL results. So think of it like a SQL table that's updated all the time that you can select from. And then you create your SQL query itself, which selects from one in-application stream and puts it into another in-application stream. Now, you can also do joins 
to reference data that originates in S3. So if you want to enrich your data, that's really functional as well. You can also wrap the results of your query to up to four destinations. And these destinations can include Amazon S3, Redshift, and the Elasticsearch service, or another Amazon Kinesis stream. So this is really, really powerful. You can imagine that you can use this to do all sorts of real-time analysis and notification at very, very large scale with minimal effort, and that's what we like. Now, speaking of large scale and minimal effort, let's round out with a new AWS application load balancer. Now, I'm sure that everyone listening to this podcast is very familiar with our old friend, the ELB, the Elastic Load Balancer, and that came out, was released actually in 2009, would you believe, and has seen so much uh, growth and change and improvement over time, and uh, it's really the, uh, the central point for many, many application architectures. So what the application load balancer does, so the ALB, as against the ELB, is it runs at layer seven and supports a specialized set of advanced features that are available to you when you run uh, at layer seven. Now, the original option, the ELB is now called the classic load balancer, is still available to you, and that's layer four and layer seven functionality. But the new ALB gives you some very cool things. Some of the things to be aware of is firstly gives you content-based routing. I know lots of customers have wanted to do this for a long time. Essentially, because it has access to the HTTP headers, you can route the request to different backend services accordingly. So you might want to send requests that have slash API to one group of servers, and these are called target groups. Another set of requests that are slash mobile could go to another target group. So you can start to build different sized clusters of servers that service different target endpoints, which means you can build microservices architectures very, very effective. In fact, uh, each application load balancer allows you to define up to 10 URL-based rules to route requests to target groups. And uh, over time, we plan to evolve these routing methods as well. This also extends into container-based applications. So there's been an update that also allows this capability to be used with the Amazon EC2 Container Service, or ECS. So this means that um, you can have many, many services having very container-based aware routing taking place at a very fine-grained level. We also provide much more uh, granular health checks on a per-port basis. So you get more detailed error codes, you can see what's going again with your microservices architecture. One of the things we're seeing with microservices architecture is your instrumentation needs to be top-notch to be able to operate, manage and scale. The ALB allows you to do that. The other thing the ALB brings to the table is support for WebSocket and HTTP slash 2. WebSocket I know has been a big ask for people because it allows you to create long-standing TCP connections between your client and server. This is really, really useful um, rather than having to have some sort of heart-beating model or some sort of other hacking type way to make it work. Uh, HTTP 2 is a lot better than the HTTP 1.1 protocol. So things like uh, multiplexed, multiplexed requests across a single connection, um, reduction in network traffic, etc. It's really a, uh, a load balancing protocol suited to modern applications. Now the creation process is pretty similar to the old one. In fact, when you go out to set up your ELB, you'll see there's two load balancer types. There's the ALB and the CLB, the classic load balancer. So you can choose which one you want to do. The other thing to be aware of is if you have existing load balancers and you want to migrate them, you are able to do that. There's actually a tool that allows you to basically copy it across. It's called the Load Balancer Copy Utility. It's a Python tool and it will allow you to create an ALB with the same configuration as your classic load balancer. 
can also register your existing EC2 instances with that new load balancer, which is pretty cool. Now the pricing mechanism also changes. Now this, I'll point out, is available in all commercial AWS regions today. The hourly rate for the use of the ALB is about 10% lower than for a classic load balancer. So more functionality, lower cost. That's a good thing. The way that we bill it has changed and we now use uh, load balancer capacity units which are called LCUs. And an LCU measures the number of new connections per second, the number of active connections and data transfer. And we measure in all three dimensions but bill based on the highest one. And the billing is fractional and it's charged at 0.008 cents per LCU per hour. And the team has done some analysis to understand where our customers would sit if they migrated across. And we believe that virtually all of our customers can obtain a net reduction in their cost by switching from a classic load balancer to an application load balancer. So a good one to dive into way more detail. Now, many people have asked for uh, some black belt tips to come back. And so thanks to uh, Mark in our Melbourne office, I have some black belt tips for you this week. These are some uh, black belt tips related to using Node.js on Lambda. And these are just some gotchas that he's been noticing have been happening for people that you need to keep an eye out for. Four common issues. The first one is uh, deployment packages that have the wrong directory root. So packaging should be done from within the top directory of the function, not above it. It's a really easy mistake to make. I know I've done that myself. If you don't get that packaging in the right place, everything is pretty much screwed up. Uh, having an incorrect or missing entry handler and mismatching the handler and the file name. So if you create hello world.js, then hello world.myhandler is the handler. So you've got to have consistency between the names. Very, very important. Another gotcha is failing to correctly terminate or call back the function. Now it's always a good thing when you have a function, it should end elegantly. That's what we kind of like. So if you're using node in version um, uh, less than 4.3, then you want to be returning a context.succeed, context.fail, or context.done. Otherwise, you're using the callback mechanism. The last one is forgetting about the event loop. Now, I'm no expert in Node.js event loops. In fact, it makes my head hurt, but Mark's very good at them. Uh, and the thing that he points out is that the context calls freeze the node process immediately and does not empty the event loop. And when the next invocation happens, execution starts with a previous global state callback will empty the event loop before freezing. So it sort of cleans it up much, much more nicely. So you can use context.callback waits for empty event loop equals false to make callbacks behave like context. That's a deep dive black belt tip if ever I've seen one, but it's one of those ones that if you're using it, you'll get it straight away and say, aha, that's handy. So as you can see, lots and lots of updates and I have lots more for you next week but I think we've reached the end of our time. So until next time, keep on building.